Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Um, we're, I think this is going to be a fun episode this week, not least of which because we had probably the most technical problems we've ever had in the 30 seconds, five minutes to 30 seconds leading up to this recording. So we've got good, we've got good energy going. The vibes are ready. My microphone is way too hot. It's fine. You probably won't even notice because Donato's editing and he's going to bring me down a little bit. Speaking of Donato, buddy, how are you doing? How are things? How's Los Angeles? It's great. Uh, we're bringing real chaos energy to the podcast today. I didn't even I didn't even say the part where we're the only podcast that does tenor that talks about horror films with tenor free reviews and Rotten Tomatoes. That's not even on my mind right now. Yeah, you forgot because are we the only one still? Did something happen in the month we took off? Did we just give up our position? Probably. Um, but based on the eight reviews we've had, I think we're going to get it back pretty quickly. So I'm not worried about it. Thanks for bringing it up, though. So we've got an exciting episode for everybody this week, uh, not least of which, um, and we're going to find out how good she is with compliments starting right now, not least of which because our guest is one of my favorite writers, has been one of my favorite writers for years, and I am super fucking excited to have her on the podcast. Uh, so Donato, introductions, and then more compliments, and then maybe we'll let her talk. I mean, you kind of just did it for me, so <laughs> I'm going to cut right to the chase. And number one, we already had this person on the website writing about Hagazusa, Mr. Monogle's uh, favorite, mm. or one of Mr. Monogle's favorite mm. books of all time. So already she is just a step up just for doing that. In any case, uh, you know her as Meg Shields, and you know her work on sites such as Film School Rejects and other places and podcasts and things like that. So Meg, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Howdy. So Meg, I'm going to, uh, another compliment, and then we'll start with the show. Um, I consider you to be, if there are cohorts, right, like graduating classes in film criticism, I consider you to be kind of like the cohort that I came in with because we were both writing for Film School Rejects around the same time. And, you know, you kind of start in your community and get to know who the writers are that you're writing with the publications and kind of go out from there. So um, I remembered that you were, because of that, you were one of the first writers that I found myself reading regularly because I was like, oh, we share bylines at the site. That's really cool. Um, but again, compliments. I just think that you approach horror with such a like refreshing earnestness and thoughtfulness and the series that you do at Film School Rejects, because you deal a lot with like practical special effects and digging into the histories of movies, extremely fucking well-researched. And Donato knows that I like people that sort of sit at this pop culture academic intersection. And I think that you're, you're one of the best in those niches. So that's, that's it. No more compliments for you. We got it all done at the front of the show. You don't need to deal with it anymore. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I will say I did have like an exhilarating moment today where I was like trying to do some background research for this film and I could not find uh, like a digital PDF version of this book I wanted. And I like couldn't get it through like it, there wasn't an online version on um, the university I work for is uh, like online library system. And then I was like, I wonder if we have a physical copy in the collection. And so I like like spent my lunch break just running through the stacks and I like got it. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. We need more academically inclined film critics. Cause I think the actual process of doing research, especially physical research, I like forgot how much fun it is to like mm -hmm. actually, you know, go find the book and shit. Um, not that I'm not above going on the internet archive and looking at like ancient copies of Starlog, which any self-respecting journalist should have to do at least yes. once. Um, but yeah, thank you. I will say though, it is your fault that I write because I think I ended up writing, I've told you this, I wrote, I, I like applied to work at Film School Rejects because I read 
something of yours about recommending horror films to people and how it's like a very delicate process because you don't want to like alienate everyone you know (laughs) and I was like hell yeah like I love this and that was definitely like a push uh out of not doing it to doing it so it's all it's all your fault (laughs) that's fine you know what I I will take I'll I'll take credit for that your entire career is thanks to me that feels pretty good exactly but you know we (laughs) We often don't spend enough time probably forming our little mutual admiration society with our guests, which is the reason we bring anybody on the show is because Aww. we really, really love their work. So let's uh, let's let's breathe positivity into the world. Um, and on that note, first of all, I agree with what you say. All the cool kids have newspaper.com subscriptions. That's just a fact. But the other the a lot of what you're talking about, I think, gets you into kind of where you are now and, and how you, what you're inclined to to do when you write about film and the places where you're inclined to look. But anybody who listens to the show knows we like to start at the beginning too. So I don't imagine that you began, you know, you didn't watch your first horror movie and be like, where's the nearest library? I have to look some shit up. So I am, I'm curious as to how that be, that process began for you. First film that you remember, first time you were cognizant of horror as being something separate and unique among movies and what that impression was like for you. That's a very good question. Um, I have a very groovy mom. I have like two, I'm very lucky. I have two parents who like, generally speaking, watch a lot of movies. I will not comment on my father's taste. He's very much like a Netflix dad where he like, if he sees like Gerard Butler and the words crime thriller, he's like, I'll watch it. (laughs) Um, But my, my mom has taste. (laughs) And um, uh, I watched a lot of Ken Russell as a kid. uh, And I watched, uh, I was, I got to watch, um, the animated Watership Down when I was a kid, which I loved. There's like a very cursed, not VHS, obviously, but like the little cassettes, like a, a beta beta tape that from a video camera of me literally doing a shot for shot remake of Watership Down. And I think watching that film as a kid, I was like, okay, well, this is clearly different in my little child mind from like, whatever, the other content I'm currently being exposed to in terms of like animated content. I also am a huge fan of Don Bluth and I could understand that there were different like emotional variances in even just animation as a medium. Um, And yeah, I don't know. Like it's no, it's always been both scary and exciting. I I definitely was one of those kids who was like hiding behind a couch, but like, don't turn it off. (laughs) Like I'm into it. I just need to hide. Um, But your question was about like, when did I start thinking about how movies were made? And I think a lot of that has to do with being lucky enough to grow up at a time where movies were still relatively practical, but also, and like, this is like a very niche Venn diagram for a certain older millennial. Also at the time where DVD extras were becoming popular. So like, um, I'm sure this is true for lots of folks with the special features on the Lord of the Rings box set are like life changing where you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> this is like, like people do this for a living and there's all this like creativity and magic that goes into making movies. Um, and, uh, I mentioned this off pod, but I, I live on an Island and, um, before we got internet, we like, and, uh, and DVDs had been invented. <laughs> we like only had 12. So like after a while, you're like, I can't watch gladiator anymore. Like what's on the special features. And, that kind of exposes you to like the exciting crunchy bits of how they did stuff. And, um, you know, the little it stuff that never diminishes the actual narrative experience and actually enriches it. Cause I think there's this misconception that knowing how the sausage is made will like take you out of it. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's true. Like I, I hear people talk about people they know who are really into movies and they'll say like, oh yeah, like he just notices everything or like he knows how stuff's made. And I'm like, I don't think that that distances you from the story or the immersion. I think it actually opens up new avenues of appreciating it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I feel like I really miss DVD special features. I'm, I'm unfortunately not a physical media collector because I move around so much. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the culprit that, and like being exposed to like a lot of goofy practical effects films from like the seventies and eighties from my mom. Um, like tactility is super important to me in a movie Hmm. and that's going away. Unfortunately, more goop. (laughs) Yep. Was that because, you know, some people come on the podcast and the way they talk about their first experience with horror movies, they mention how they watch a horror movie as a little kid and it helps to understand all the stuff behind the scenes because when they understand it's fake, they can understand that it is like, or that, sorry, when they understand that there's like some fakeness behind it and a practical magic to it, it becomes less scary. So I forget which guest came on, but they said like their mother made them watch a horror movie all the way through. And also like kind of, again, like you just said, acknowledge that it is fake and there are people behind the scenes working through things. So what, what, did that drive your kind of love of that, of going into the practical and watching how it got made to be like, oh, I can actually explain why these things happen through pac- practical effects. Like I appreciate it more, but also maybe, I don't know, like was it a less scared thing too? Or I don't think I've ever been like, unfortunately I am one of those bitches who's like, I don't find movies scary. <laughs> like, uh, And like, I don't think I've ever been it's really rare now to be genuinely scared. And I think as a kid, it's so funny. Like it was never the practical effects or stuff that spooked me. It was always really unexpected stuff, which is actually still true today. Like I will say, like, I have like, if if someone was like, what's a, a, you know, a core memory as a kid of being scared of something, it's Scooby-Doo on zombie Island. Like what the fuck? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like, although, and I do have I do have a theory that there is a direct pipeline. There's there's a, a Scooby Doo on Zombie Island to Fulci pipeline. <laughs> I swear to God, we need to like start a support group because I I know that that those snapses make sense. I just need confirmation. It's like you watch the Bayou Zombies and you're like, okay, great. And then you like ten years pass and you're like watching the Beyond and you're like, where have I seen this before? <laughs> um, uh, but again, that's like animated, right? Like, like you know it's fake and it still scares you. And I find like even as an adult, like I'm obviously aware <laughs> that movies are fake. But like uh, ages ago, I tried to watch Kronos and I literally could not. I had to turn it off, which I've never had happened before or since. And it was because I was so emotionally invested. I was like, I can't watch anything bad happen to this grandpa. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's a question of like, uh, understanding the magic trick of it all to like defang it or anything. I think those are actually two separate pies of mm. that some obviously have to do with one another. Um, but yeah, I do think just like appreciating craft is something that goes hand in hand with visual literacy. And like, I think more people should do. Um, and obviously because things are wobbly CGI, mostly these days, it's not, it's easy to get people emotionally invested in special effects because cgi is less emotionally investing which is too bad (laughs) again this is my political platform is more goop 2023 (laughs) well and we won't 
talk about it yet, but the movie that you've chosen is is a prime candidate for that particular uh, yeah. race. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask about um, your personal preferences in horror, because I think anybody who has even a glancing awareness, like glancing knowledge of you, knows that like nunsploitation has and always will be kind of your thing, right? That's like the that is the niche. If every film critic has a niche that only they own, nunsploitation belongs to Meg Shields. So I'm curious when you like what drew you to that specifically, but also to like the other types of film and, and horror that you love. Was there just like you would watch stuff and stuff would would pick with you? Are there certain themes in those type of movies that you found resonated more for you over the years? Like what kind of we'll we'll anchor it in exploitation now because I love that particular subgenre. But like what made that something that you were like, this is I'm gonna put my little flag here and this is gonna be you have you need recommendations or have questions come to me. Uh, I mean, I think what's fun about nunsploitation is for the most part, it's punching in the right direction. Like I'm, I'm speaking to you from Canada where our relationship with the Catholic church is like not great. Um, like this will date the podcast obviously, but the Pope is literally like coming to Canada this weekend to like apologize for residential schools, which like, uh, (laughs) I don't know if an apology will be enough, my guy. Um, so it's just like, I think that I think the Catholic church is such a good um, fairground for, you know, twisting stuff and subverting things. And there's such crunchy material in terms of just Catholicism being the gothist religion, (laughs) Um, like the decorum and ritual of it all. I don't think you have to be a religious person to find that just like aesthetically intriguing. And then it's also fun that they're like, they're they're mostly films with and about women like that's fun like I know horror is an especially friendly genre to women like we get to be protagonists more so than in other genres um but there's a lot of exploitations where nary a man can be found and that's great um and they're also just really goofy like there are serious ones that like you know get Oscar nominations and stuff but there's also like bottom of the barrel like you can kind of uh like, I don't know how to describe it. Like, most supernatural Italian horror, you know what you're going to get quality-wise. Like, they're all pretty much going to scratch the same itch. But with exploitation, you can really just, like, cast a wide net in terms of quality, which I say is a positive. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, Like, it's there's something for everybody. <laughs> maybe, maybe not like really, actually, that's not true. I'm sure there's devout Catholics that find that shit like super scary and confirming of their faith. I, I had the pleasure of showing my mom the exorcist for the first time recently. She'd never seen it, which is embarrassing for her. And I had to explain to her that it was just like Catholic propaganda. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, let me, let me explain. <laughs> like, so yeah, I find that it's very funny that like exploitation is like both, pro-Catholic and also subversive of like things that are considered literally sacred. So I think that's fun. Uh, So yeah, that sort of kind of like use for horror to say something is interesting. Like even if something is especially goofy or whatever, not executed well (laughs) in scare quotes. um, I think something that horror does that other genres can't is use metaphor and allusion to make 
broader, stickier, uncomfortable points, which is like probably why it doesn't win Oscars. Because <laughs> mm. like the Academy doesn't understand how metaphors work. Like you literally need to have thesis statements in movies for them to win an Oscar. <laughs> um, whereas, I don't know, I keep bringing up Fulci, but Fulci's like, I don't know, what about this? <laughs> like, it's just like a spider crawling across the skull. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, I don't know. I like, I like that horror can dabble in things without really needing to say them uh highly recommend watching your favorite international horror film without subtitles i actually think that's like a super fun experience i recently watched the church by michele soavi without subtitles you didn't hear it from me but there's a very good uh um scan of a 16 millimeters of it on uh something that rhymes with lutube.com should still be there there's no subtitles though (laughs) um but yeah i don't know the kind of rhythm the way that horror can have a a narrative rhythm without needing to have lots of exposition i think is pretty special so i do gravitate towards those films not that they don't have plots because i i think that's not fair to those types of films uh yeah but uh that's a little inside baseball is to some drama (laughs) very micro drama on twitter yesterday i don't know if you guys saw letterbox like posted they were like these films have just vibes no plot it's like hmm (laughs) i don't know about that (laughs) we were too busy. We were too busy arguing about the guy that was uh, that was ranking Jordan Peele uh, movies yesterday. So oh. I don't. I don't think anybody had time for for Has two. Has there been more delicious Schadenfreude? <laughs> like, <Yeah>. Oof. <laughs> well, I like I like what you said, Meg, because I mean, you know, I I have I, uh, with Catholic films in particular. I think that there's a unique like Catholics are weirdly obsessed with their own religion. And I say this as the the son of a Catholic deacon. So I get to, I get to say, (laughs) I get to say this. Catholics are weirdly obsessed with like movies about their own thing in a way that doesn't, you know, there are, you think of like faith-based films that are sort of providing safe narratives to evangelicals. But like my parents, my, my mom is the retired religious ed instructor at my, in my hometown. My dad is the former, what finance director of the St. Paul's Catholic church. And he's a de- ordained deacon in the Catholic church and they watch evil and they watch horror films. And there's just like a, I don't know. They, they, they're like, they get into the, the, the pulpy drama of Catholic of all th- sides of Catholicism. And I think that's always been something I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it, but I think that's something I like about Catholics is Catholics like, like their own dirt in a way that I don't think that other religions, other Christian religions do. Like Catholics like the exorcist, Catholics like nunsploitation. They'll dig into that. They may not approve of it, but they're going to fucking watch it. Whereas I don't know if others do it to the same degree. Yeah. And like, we can blame the Catholics for many things. They have sinned greatly, but like you can't fault them for aesthetics in my opinion. (laughs) Like like, I just love a gaudy religion, like G-A-U-D-Y, like hell yes. (laughs) A gaudy, godly religion. (laughs) To be fair, that they have sinned, but they asked for forgiveness, so it's cool. They're good. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Absolution. Ten Hail Marys yeah. and our Father. Um, cool. None stuff. I dig it. Uh, yeah. We we have kind of talked about like what you're drawn to and kind of how you got there, but I know that like there are people that listen to the show that are you know we've had people that that are fans of the show that are like oh I want to pitch uh, for the first time ever I want to like pitch something to you, or I want to like, think about writing. I feel like maybe I have something to say, which is always one of the best compliments you can get when you work in this industry. So let's talk a little bit about your journey as a writer and kind of how you got to write about the stuff in the places that you do now. Is this something that you dabbled in? Is it something that you, you know, I, some, everybody has a different arc, I, whether they had like a live journal that they wrote stuff in back in the day, or they wrote for free for a college newspaper or something like that. So what was your journey to horror criticism? 
poor criticism. Uh, I don't know. Like I, I, um, I've always written. I've always been good at writing, quote unquote. Uh, and I definitely wrote for the school newspaper, but it was always casual. It was never like my thing. Um, and like in high school, I think I actually might have written film reviews. I need to find them because I think they've been digitized. <laughs> I think I might have written a review of the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover for my high school, <laughs> my high school newspaper. But I, I, I'll, I'll find it later. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I think I, I've been watching movies for longer than I've considered writing about them, and I think writing was happening like parallel to that and. I'm trying to think of when they intersected because um, I I did a, a liberal arts degree and that was actually the biggest struggle when I did end up writing was having to untangle all that academic language from how I write because um, it really messes you up and you're like, oh, I don't actually know how to write for people, who, normal people <laughs> right. uh, anymore. So that was like a huge unlearning process. Yeah, you're writing for more like, people than you're just your advisor. Yeah, or just like learning how to write normally, because I think sometimes, and like, I actually think this is uh, something that, especially the humanity, actually, no, every discipline should probably learn from this. Like, if you can't interpret your work to the public, there's no point in you doing it, in my opinion. Like, I think you should be able to clearly, succinctly explain what you're doing to people, or else it's probably bad work. Mm. Um, Especially humanities. Like, I find you get a lot of word salad sometimes from like, I don't know, philosophy PhDs, and you're like, what do you study? And they're like, I guess evil. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I don't think it was like gradual. I think literally, like I, when I graduated from my undergrad, I, I wanted to, my, my day job is I'm an archivist, and I wanted to test the waters to see what working in an archive was like before I spent all that money on grad school. And so I went and worked at um, a Holocaust education center uh, in 2016, the year that Trump got elected. And as you can imagine, this was a bad call on my part. And we got like multiple bomb threats. It was like definitely a time to be working in a Jewish cultural center. Um, like bomb threats, even in Canada, like we weren't in America. It was so nuts. And, uh, anyway, so like I was doing that, I was like digitizing Holocaust records, transcribing survivor testimony. I was like, this is a lot. I was like, I think I need another thing. Um, and uh, started writing at Film School Rejects, and it was most it was very bifurcated in my brain and like the day job and this other thing where my energy was going, and it was only after those muscles kind of built up and there was less learning happening of like how do you actually write for the internet? How do you like make a title that <laughs> people want to read? Like that kind of shit. Like once that all became just passive and I could actually focus on the writing it was easier to kind of identify what I like to do so writing about practical effects um uh highlighting other folks work like right now I've been I've been um highlighting video essays that people have been doing for like almost two years and it's so much fun to just like point at other people's work and be like this is super good please go read this or listen um so yeah yeah I don't know it it like that was the journey (laughs) Yeah. There was no like aha moment. It was more just it happened that way. I was going to say for me, it's always interesting to hear uh, and especially like sitting here and listening to you and Monogle talk like I'm not getting involved that much yet because you <laughs> both have the academic background where like I came into it not academic like 
I was a business major who stumbled into writing online. So like I always learned how to write by like gearing myself to write online and doing it that way. And like, it just is so interesting to hear the academic side of it and hearing like as good of as a writer you can be like for your professors and stuff like that, having to go to like a general audience. And like, uh, I, I feel like that translates right into, you know, maybe if you start writing for multiple outlets and it's like, okay, IGN has one style guide and like, I have to do, I have to write for this audience. And over here on film school is a completely different audience. And you like, you forget about how intricate it is and how every site has its own audience and how freelance writers aren't just writing to, you know, like, like you both said before, like I'm not just writing to write for one person, whether that's me or a professor or something like that. Like you have to keep the audience in mind. You have to keep all these things in mind. And it just is, like, I think people might forget that it, they just might think it's like words on a page and you do the same thing over and over again. But like, it's so intricate to say, no, this assignment for one site, this assignment for another site that can be totally different tones, text, everything about that. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's just interesting again for me to hear that, like the academic side of it was a little bit like great to learn on, but then all of a sudden you had to like unlearn certain things. Oh, sure. Like you, like I remember in the early days, like I'd use a word and be like, actually, I think that word is not helping the sentence. Like, <laughs> like that actually is not serving the sentence at all it needs to go. Yeah, I think the like question of developing a voice too, which is such a like, I don't know, when you read it in a style guide or like in a, you know, whatever onboarding email, you're like, <laughs> like, like, it's kind of like, I don't know, repulsive as a, a first time writer, or at least I found it that way. I was like, like, what do you mean? But it's almost like someone calling out your accent or something where you're like, I don't have an accent. And then you're like, oh, I definitely do. <laughs> like, And then it just gets stronger, more insane over time. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think the, the flip side of that, and Meg, I feel like you and I, I mean, yes, we come at writing from academia, but we aren't trying to make a go of it in academia. Oh no, we, we we are reformed. We are yeah. lapsed academics. <laughs> we are we both we both get to be chill about it because everybody I know who is out there looking for adjunct positions has gone affectionately. Have, have they've all like they're they're wrecked. All of those are like oh, oh yeah, I don't love that life. Beings. It's mm-hmm. not for me. <laughs> So we get to, we get to kind of be, we get to be chill a little bit about it, but this is something that I brought up on the podcast a couple of times before that I think Meg, you'll probably appreciate is it's interesting to bridge the world in the other direction sometimes, because there are a lot of really good film critics, popular film critics that I think sometimes think that they're reinventing the wheel. And it's always, it's always not, you know, like go into academia.edu and search for any film you want. And I, like I always say this, I guarantee you, the best piece on any movie was probably written at the end of a class. One person read it. It was like the the person that taught the class. And like, it's only ever been read by two people and lives on like a Google drive somewhere labeled writing samples. Like there's just so much of so many good ideas and so many thoughts are bouncing around in academia that just never get unlocked and never get the public view. So I always, I always am part of the reason why I'm so excited whenever I see people that walk those worlds is because I want to unlock a little bit of that. Like there's so much mm-hmm. good writing in academia, but writing in academia is so often written for like the four people in my peer review class and my advisor at the end of the, the semester. When, if you provided a different version of that to a wider audience, I think they would be super, super into it. So that's, that's part totally. of it too, is it, it's not just about like, how do I, adjust my writing for popular criticism, which I think is important in a process we all need to go through. But it's like, how do I encourage? Cause we always bitch and moan about like, Oh, modern audiences, you know, they don't, they're not literate in media. I'm like, well, that's kind of fucking our job 
to teach them how to do that a little bit. Yeah. So we need to get better at like bringing them halfway and then escalating that, giving them new opportunities to push themselves a little bit once we feel like we've covered kind of the basis. I will say I, though, like yeah. I think I think like de like wrenching the academy out of the way you write isn't doesn't necessarily mean you have to dumb down the way you write. Correct. It just means being clearer. Correct. Like I find that a lot of academics write to like almost prove their academics. Like they like especially uh I don't know, just like I, I don't see laymen being able to read Hegel papers. Like I think that would be very hard for them. Mm-hmm. And that isn't to say that there isn't an accessible way to write those papers. I just think there's a tradition of writing academically like especially with especially with continental philosophy and definitely with analytic philosophy that has made it like very hard for people to approach even though and that is that is like the fault of academia for not being clear in how they write mm-hmm. and that is totally different from whatever the content of what they're writing um i know that was definitely like the fulcrum point of ripping the academia out of how i wrote is i was like oh i'm I, i'm there's a way of saying this exactly the same in a way that is actually getting to the point a lot quicker and leaves room to be able to do other stuff. Um, does that make there, sense? It does. <laughs> no, it definitely does. And I think there's a piece of that too, which you know is worth acknowledging is that like when you write in a cultural context, you also sort of adopt versions of SEO best practices. And I know that, oh, that totally. for, <laughs> yes. for a lot of folks that feels like a dirty word, but like for me, that just means, okay, I write shorter sentences than I used to. And my paragraphs are shorter than they used to be. And those are just two small examples of like, I don't change who I am. I don't change how I communicate, but I'm always conscious about how complex is the sentence structure because it's being read by a human, but it's also being read by a computer, right? Like the AI is determining like the value of this piece sort of in a vacuum. And so I think that's, that's the other flip side is you sort of end up naturally just writing a little bit differently when you work in this because people are giving you feedback about, that has nothing to do with your knowledge or your ability to convey it. It's just like shorter sentences, use more or less keywords, like do these kind of things. And so you kind of end up, if you come, I feel if you come from a strong place and you kind of like tweak your writing style a little bit um, to adhere to SEO best practices, you end up in kind of this like beautiful little hybrid spot of like cultural criticism and academia and like really good content marketing, which I'm sorry, there's a version of that that we all do. And it just sort of like aligns <laughs> perfectly here. I know, I know, I know, I know I'm. No, it's I, so I, real. I You're like, am I, am I PR? <laughs> I know I'm, I am the only person in the world that, that like completely embraces the, uh, the, the gross content marketing side of film criticism because that's part of it too. And so, yeah, it's. Are you kidding? I like, I, that's like one of my favorite parts of being a film critic is like when you see something that rips being like, how do I get as many eyes on this as possible? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. No, that's well, super real. Yeah, know. and it's also I deny thing, that. <laughs> it's the thing Amongal said before, like SEO isn't a dirty word. It's just how you want to write about it. Like I, I forget what I tweeted the other day, but it was just like be the change you want to see in SEO writing. Like it doesn't have to be bad. Like I mean, Monogle and I go. I won't go on long about it because we always do it. But my favorite thing to do is to see an SEO trending term and find a way to engage with it that isn't just the normal. Like yes, I know a lot of SEO writing on the internet can be the same. It can be right. just regurgitated lists and stuff like that. But that's what that's my challenge at that point my challenge is to take that totally. and make it something yeah. interesting and something new and fresh and it's like i keep pointing at articles that someone's like oh that was a really good article and i'm like yeah that was an seo piece and they're like what do you mean i'm like look at the title look at how i was able to manipulate the title and then look at the content in between it's like 
there are so many ways to get into that. So yeah, it, it's, it is not the dirty word we think it is. And I, I like, you know, I just laugh whenever it becomes the thing of like, ah, oh, like SEO is killing writing. And it's like, well, I mean, if you treat it differently, it doesn't have to, you can be that person mm-hmm. that makes SEO writing the next big thing. Like, yeah. Have and. you tried not being a little bitch? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't be you a little tell, bitch. You tell them that? Listen to Meg. <laughs> I mean, uh, worth worth noting too, um, since we're here to hype you up as the guest. I mean, you <laughs> have been you have been spearheading. <laughs> you got you got to take it. You got to take the compliments. Um, you've cool. been you've been spearheading a really fun thing that uh, Film School Rejects does every year, which is like the thirty days of lists during Halloween, right? And like, I won't is, I won't take all credit for that. That's that's a Rob a Hunter initiative. Don't give Rob, Rob no, Hunter no, credit Rob, on this fucking podcast. <laughs> I know, I know Rob is involved. I believe Brad is involved. Like there's a couple of different people that are involved Kieran. in the process. Can't leave Kieran Kieran, out. Kieran, yeah. But, but it's yeah, really Kieran, like. Yeah, Anna, Anna Swanson. Actually Val's doing uh, some too now. Sorry, we're just listing yep. people we know. No, but it's like, okay. It's yeah, good. It's all good. It's, it's a good group. <laughs> the purpose, the purpose of it, sorry. The purpose of it is that you are <laughs> writing in October and have for many years, you know, a dozen a half dozen, a dozen lists that are oh, just like, list, no, it's one, one per day. day. One list a day. Yeah. But like you, you personally, you personally are writing like six lists on that month, a dozen lists during that month. Cause you kind of divide it up a little bit. Right. We so, contribute. So we are, we're all doing a little bit of everything. Like, like, gotcha. I don't, we don't have, we don't have to talk shop, but like you end up contributing to every list. Perfect. And, and, and that is like the front facing part. The back facing part is like, excel sheet city (laughs) like it is actually an extremely democratic process like it's okay (laughs) we all love data (laughs) we do but i think that's a great example too like that's something i look forward to reading every year because you know the the categories that your group decides on and that you choose are so incredibly niche um Like they are like a lot of like a lot of the you know you're talking about specific types of like horror specific like subgenres or holidays in horror sure. and I love it because it's it's an opportunity for folks you know if you're going to be like twenty great horror films to watch this Halloween like you don't hopefully people that are reading this kind of stuff don't need that that they they kind of know the basics they know which ones they can pull from what they really need is somebody to be like you know, the top 20 nun horror films to watch this Halloween or something like that, that becomes an opportunity for them to really get value from that piece in a way that just like, you know, what are the top ranked films on IMDb and what is the, you know, the AMC 100 movies. And there we go. We're just going to write a a paragraph on each of those. That's bad SEO. What you do is good SEO. Ah, I wish I could say that we're thinking about SEO when we do that, but it's mostly just all of us individually going, what haven't we done yet? (laughs) I'm going to petition Hunter this year to let me do a guest list on the top 20 reds in horror. Yes. You'll have to, you'll have to wait till next year. We've already, this, this year's already been signed, sealed and not delivered, but soon. (laughs) That's lunacy. I mean, it is crazy. The undertaking you guys. You try hurting cats that all live in different parts of the world to, to write that many lists. You have to start in August. I tried to podcast with Kieran and Rob and that was hard enough alone. So I understand. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah. It's taken like four years to like kind of get, a, a bit of a flow down with that work process <laughs> like nice. yeah well speaking of herding cats um i think that that's a perfect segue for this film about herding mice and see it's h-u-r-t-i-n-g hurting hurting mice it's sort of a Great. yeah sure. it was it was pretty good it was pretty good <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back uh meg is going to explain brad Dourif to us we'll be back in just a second Thank you. 
just want to take a minute here and say thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon or honestly on social media too. If you share this podcast, if you've left us a review or if you've read some of our articles recently, you're a big, big part of the success that we've had and why we can do what we love to do. And on that note, as we do every episode, Donato's got some uh, some pretty groovy bumpers. We've been playing too much Evil Dead. Some pretty groovy bumpers for us to enjoy today. Uh, the first one is very simple. It is from Mr. Luke, and it says, I want to make sure I say it the right amount of times that he has typed. Uh, vote, 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 vote. Yeah, we are in a midterm year, which means that there's a lot of stuff that's going to be on your ballot, and I understand, I get it, I get the fatigue with national level elections. I get the sense that they don't matter, but I promise you school board elections, city council elections, board of trustees for local universities in, in Austin, we vote for, you know, who's on the board of trustees for Austin community college. These things do matter. They will matter, especially as states or as the federal government goes to move more stuff back to the state level, states and cities are what we have. And that's what you got to vote in. If you're tired of senators and Congress people, great vote for, your school boards vote for your city council vote for all that shit that yeah <laughs> in any case uh i could should I just get right into our second bumper what's our second bumper sir is it also vote 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 it is not uh this is actually okay so this is from nathaniel and it was hilarious because he gave it to me so quick which means he wrote this on the spot like it was nothing uh so this is from nathaniel today uh totally yes definitely please read the following limerick there once was a podcast B-Sign with films that had long been forgotten. They offer their takes for the reels and the fakes, and their socks are all made of cotton. And then he said, there aren't enough rhymes for the word forgotten. Sorry. <laughs> That's on us. Uh, yeah, maybe not the maybe not the best name for limericks. I would like to apologize. We, we didn't really put that. In, that wasn't part of our naming factors and considerations when we named the podcast. We should have done that. But it was a, I, I like the idea that people are getting creative with the bumpers where they don't have to just be questions or anything. If you want to write us a poem, sure, we'll read it. Limerence, I don't care. Hell yeah. Also, all of my socks are mylar. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I have mostly cotton socks. That was actually dead on. Fair enough. Uh, thank you to both of you, Luke and Nathaniel, for uh, writing us excellent bumpers today. And thanks to everybody else for listening. Let's get back to our show. All right, welcome back. We are here to talk about a Stephen King film. I think maybe the first Stephen King film on the podcast, if I'm remembering correctly, technically. Really? I think so. He's his no movies are pretty been popular. Like, no one's been like, time to champion the Tommyknockers, baby. Nope. nope. And I think uh, the Tommyknockers actually has more than 10 reviews on. Rock oh, did you know? Movies. Also, uh, I checked. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get started. I love it. No, 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 no. We're not allowed. Um, I, I checked the Rotten Tomatoes for Graveyard Shift. And it lost a review. It used to have 13% and eight reviews, and it now has 0% and seven reviews. So someone rescinded their review. I need you to go on the Wayback Machine I and figure out who that was. I did not know you could do that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you can do it. Like, someone if you're was a supposed single... to hold the line, and they left. <laughs> nope. If you're the single approved Rotten Tomatoes critic and you have access to Tomato Meter, you can delete your review. So somebody literally was like, I'm the only positive on Graveyard Shift? No, I can't be. Bro, this sh so shameful. 
if I find out who it is, I'm going to publicly shame them. <laughs> you should. But also, I mean, it could be less malicious than that. It could just be a website that went under. Do your, the, blur, the blurbs your, stay there. Your, so. I was going to say, I think you have to delete it. Yeah. Like oh, it really? has to be okay. a decision. <laughs> okay. All right. Some well, regardless, the film, it's a Graveyard Shift is a film with seven reviews on uh, <laughs> Tomatoes. So it falls in perfectly underneath our window. And I prepared, I prepared the following uh, brief description of the movie because this is a movie that has an intricate plot that needs to be understood and digested. So see if you can follow along. <laughs> Graveyard Shift is the feature film debut and feature film swan song of director Ralph S. Singleton. <laughs> Based on the Stephen King story of the same name, Graveyard Shift follows a drifter who stops at a New England textile factory to pick up a few weeks of work. Under the watch of the cruel foreman, the drifter and several other model employees are tasked with cleaning up the mill's sub-basement and the thousands of rats and one inhuman rat monstrosity that calls the sub-basement home. The film cost a surprising $10 million to make and earned just north of that at the box office, making Graveyard Shift an easily forgettable film for even the most diehard Stephen King fans. Now, that's my lead-in, but to refute that last thing that I just said, we've got <laughs> Meg Shields, and Meg is going to explain right now why you should pause this podcast and go out and watch Graveyard Shift go. Listen, I got three words for you. <laughs> Production value, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like for me, this film, like, okay, I'm going to bum a, fr- a term from Adam Neiman, but uh, like anything shot on film looks like a fucking Rembrandt compared to anything shot on digital. And I think it's the Screamer. It's sorry. It might be the Shout Factory DVD. It just looks so good. And it lets you see all the goop, all the wet rocks. Like, I don't know. The way the factory is rendered, that was a real... I think that might be uh, the oldest textile factory in the mm-hmm. U.S. Um, it it looks so good. It looks like such a sweaty... I know exactly what that place smells like. And the kind of, like, it's cool. I love the way how the deeper they go. And you're just like, I don't know where we are anymore. Like, and it just becomes this kind of like Lovecrafty and just like expanse of like just rat shenanigans. Um, I love that they built a textile factory on a river, which makes sense. You later learn that they had like hydro machinery underneath. So like, obviously there'd be a river, but then some moron was like, and let's put a graveyard next to it. That'll be great. <laughs> um I don't know. I love how it doesn't explain anything, how there's like so much like it, it's like it moves so fast. Like the thing is, people are like, I, you cannot fault a movie that understands pacing like this film just zips along, in my opinion. Um, I also think uh, why must a film be good? Isn't it enough that there is a big, disgusting, goopy rat and the best main accent? ever <laughs> presented on the silver screen also my friend from maine uh anna swanson's delightful partner ben is from this part of the u.s and says that there are people who do sound like that <laughs> like it's not that it's inaccurate it's just insane <laughs> mm. um i don't know man i love this movie i think it's it, so it followed creep show 2 and creep show 2 is fine we love the raft a great segment but other than that it's whatever And uh, what's interesting is that it was greenlit off the success of Pet Cemetery, which was like, I know this is hard to believe, but it was very serious, restrained, like took the genre very seriously, more drama than anything else. 
And people were like, this is the direction horror is heading as we get out of the 80s with all of those goop monsters and practical effects. And I love <laughs> that Graveyard Shift was like, absolutely not. We are going back to the goopy monster. We are going to play the Beach Boys over rats being water blasted <laughs> into a corridor. <laughs> like, fuck you. We're going to be goopy and funny and we don't care. Um, I don't know. I just love how much fun this movie's having. I love how disgusting it is. It just looks so um sticky mm-hmm. um i love how much fr- fun like brad dwarf knows exactly what movie he's in it's so insane that both this movie and arachnophobia came out the same year like that um john john goodman right john goodman. that his ex- that his exterminator character and brad dwarf's exterminator character that are both vietnam vets that are very intense about exterminating happened ide- at the same moment in history <clears throat> It's so funny to me. Um, I don't know. What's not to love, to be honest? There's a rap at the end with lines from... It's not even a rap. Yep. It's like it's like a, a modern... word? Like, it's like a lemon demon mashup. And it's just like all these like different or, uh, clips from... I think every movie should end like this. Yes. There should, there should either be a rap recounting the plot of the film or there should just be like a beat with key moments from... Like, clearly, the, like someone interesting did the music. I can't remember who. But um, not to say that they're responsible for that song. But I love that they were just like, that accent is iconic. That will be what sound true. That's what will lead us out of here. <laughs> the audience will leave the theater. That accent in their ears. Um, there was from yeah. the movie kind of hooked it's me from the John opening. Esposito's first, first uh, screenplay, who went on to do Walking Dead and Modern Creep Show, which sucks. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. Yeah, that's, um, that's a different podcast. Yeah. I will I will say that the thing that hooked me about the very beginning of it is um, I had watched the the cold open from the film um, and it, it opens with a great a, great cold open great cold open an aggressive textile worker in the basement who is you know uh, kind of running through his Travis Bickle you talking to me sort of thing with with the rats that are around him and I like my wife and I, when it was over, cause she was sort of in the room. Um, she's in the room <laughs> for a lot of movies that I watch. She very rarely watches movies with me. Uh, but we both kind of turned it each to each other as soon as the credits, the opening credits came on and we were both like X files. And it's so, it's so weird that I had such a specific, like there's something about the way that that opening works where like, it's a single character in isolation. There's a supernatural thing, kind of like a creepy thing that's happening around him that like he doesn't like, but he's not super turned off by it's that opening sets such a Chris Carter vibe for me. And mm. it was very, it was very interesting to sort of have that be the entryway into the rest of the movie because it, it gave me from then on, I was like monster of the week. That's what this is going to be. This is going to be a monster of the week movie. And that's kind of exactly what it was. And so it's, it, it, it set the tone probably because of my emotional connections to stuff that came afterwards, but it set the tone for me. And I was like, I, I understand what you're doing here and I'm, I'm with you the rest of the way. Something I also really like about Graveyard Shift, I just rewatched Cujo, which is a more traditionally accepted as good <laughs> Stephen King adaptation. Mm-hmm. And Cujo is fascinating because it's one of the few, like Stephen King's stories, let alone film adaptations, where there's like nothing supernatural going on. It's like just an accident of nature that this dog got bit by a rabid bat. Like, whoop de doo There's human drama happening in the back, also rabid dog. And... I actually think Graveyard Shift kind of deserves the same sort of compliment where it's like, it's kind of like, is it lazy filmmaking? But like the first time I watched this, I was like, 
is he like a werebat? Like, because the, the boss is so fucking evil that you're like, yep. he seems to like, is he in cahoots? <laughs> the rest, like, like, you're never really sure. And like, not in a kind of like, the film wants you to not be sure way. Like, it's just not clear. <laughs> like, like, sometimes he says things that you're like, he definitely knows. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out he doesn't, which I actually love that he's just this human monster that's just like, trying to keep his shitty textile factory at all costs no matter how many people he has to murder like i just i really love villains where like it's just so dumb like that it's literally just the bottom of the barrel like they just are a shitty boss who wants to make money and throw the worker underfoot which is like the generous theme of this film is that it's like whatever an anti anti-exploitation pro-union movie i guess um and I do love that, like, it's not like the, whatever, the big bat rat creature is, you know, the evil of the town or whatever. It's just like, no, it just, like, got trapped underground and did that. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's something, like, neat about that as far as, like, Stephen King storytelling goes. Like, that's usually mm. his his shtick is that there's usually some sort of whatever. And I guess in, in Cujo, the book, it's implied to be a bit supernatural with the dead zoneness of it all. But we're ignoring that. Just the movie made. Correct. So, just just so bats let, and bats and my and mises. That's all we're talking about today. I mean, it's bats all the way down. It's a bat that fucks up Cujo. So what did Stephen yep. King have against bats? Is my question. Um, also, a great joke in the making of documentary about Cujo is that uh, that Cujo gets bit by a bat and then gets killed by a bat because he gets hit by a bat at the end of the film. Many times. That's fantastic. It's very good. It's very good. Um, but yeah, I love Graveyard Shift. I don't know. I think it's just like a fun way to spend. 125 minutes if you like good creature effects. Uh, Tom Sabini was originally supposed to direct, which would have been extra goofy, I have to imagine, but I think we need to give Singleton props. I think the reason they got the budget they did to like get the production value they have is because he's mostly a producer for Paramount. So like the thing he was good at was getting money. <laughs> like He clearly did that, and I'm glad he threw all of it into creature effects and set design <laughs> and like hiring reliable character actors. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say they did not splurge on a leading man for this movie. No, um, <laughs> they, got, they got like a discount guy who's the star of Blood Simple. <laughs> correct. Uh, if anybody in their life has ever needed to grow a beard, it's David Andrews. And he, <laughs> and he did eventually. So thank God for that. Oh, my God. Donato, uh, you, this is your kind of movie through and through. So I want to I want to get your reactions on the board here. Yeah, I mean, it is quintessentially 90s. Uh, it is everything you kind of want from the idea of as you've all you've all said all the things that it is already i mean it's the kind of film that i'm watching as they're going deeper into the caverns and the way it is it's just grimy and dusty and like i I feel like i'm breathing asbestos and like my skin is like slick and gross like that is the environment that's the aesthetic like i like just dirty horror because it's a super tactile film yeah yes especially with how clean the like nice blu-ray of it is or whatever like you can just you can see how gross it is. And that, that is like why this film is great. Like if you like gross shit, gross vibes. Well, and it adds so much personality because I think we've so much horror now is, is trained to be like clean and pristine. And like, there just isn't that level of cavernous like exploration and all these like creatures that are gross, like the way horror, especially now has kind of translated um, like a creature feature, especially like, when do we get, a creature feature that is simply about the creature. There is no trauma involved. There is like nothing about this. We're, we're just getting 
a, and I don't mean to say trauma is a buzzword. Sure. But no, I, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But I was going to say it's a buzzword. And like, I just saw two shark movies this year already that start with like unfathomable atrocities to the people just before the shark attacks even happen, because we can't just have a shark attack movie. It has to be about PTSD and all these other things. And it's like, but I just want a shark movie. Like I like simplicity is so key in the way that like graveyard ship does it. Is it goofy and over the top and like maybe yeah. playing its comedy a That's little too much? That's what makes it good. That's <laughs> what makes it good. But like, is it playing its comedy a little too much at times for other people? Like, of course, it's it's going to turn people off. But I'm also someone who appreciates the fuck out of Demon Wind released in the same year. And it's like, what do you mean? What? And it, it, it kind of just like, it plays like hand in hand in the sense that horror can be as emotive and constructive and like traumatic as you want it to be. Like those horror films can exist but they don't have to be the only thing like horror can be fun too horror can just yeah, be like, about the creature effects and the things like must, that and, must a movie be good this is the question <laughs> like yeah and also yeah. what is good like i don't know and um uh yeah no there's so many like i can totally imagine like some um, actually people just like hey like why is mock the only one with a main accent if we're in maine <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. weird or like wow that relationship came out of fucking nowhere uh it's on the cutting room floor uh also there was like that all those scenes got cut because singleton was like nah people are here for the rat <laughs> and he was right <laughs> um and, well, and like i, I think Bra- brad Dourif's yeah. death too in a way like playing the exterminator again, oh, like we're in the territory so and it's so good and it's so like his head also, gets people crushed complain by- about him dying too early he dies like two-thirds of the way in like, yeah he makes want? it so far but like it is also a thing where he watches the coffin crush his head like literally he has so much time just to not be there and he just stands there just like oh man i'm not getting paid enough for this job isn't worth it and he's like his dog dies he's like this dog isn't worth it he has (laughs) multiple opportunities not to die but he does just so we can get that awesome shot of the coffin scraping his head down the like the the cave stone and it's just the Uh gooey runoff uh, also, I think the one like the one death that I really like, and it's not even the most graphic, I don't think, um, but I forget the oh, so Brogan, like Brogan is the maniac yes. who uses a fire hose like a machine gun and he's killing yes. all the rats and he dies horribly because he falls through a wooden staircase oh, yeah. that he his weight brings down and he is already swimming around in just blood soaked water. So the water is all so dyed so red. It is so murky. That is the thing bloody. I do love. I, I do love a blood lake, like a surprise right. blood lake. Like blood lake is amazing. Like Phenomena has a good, I guess it's not blood. Megat pond. <laughs> Descent has a great blood lake. More Descent. blood lakes. <laughs> yes. But like, it's not even just that because you already get the redness of the blood and they're over, they're like, they're over killing that already. But then he comes up from the water and he just has this like really thick syrupy blood, just like, like spurting from his mouth. So you get the one shade of red, the other shade of red. And like, he gets pulled under by the rat beast and he comes back up again. And now he's drenched with this like super goopy blood. So they just keep adding layer upon layer of just the grossness in every scene. And like, more like we need more of that like, there's a lot of really really good heightening in this film like when yeah. they, it keeps getting wackier and you're like what are they gonna do and then they break into like a giant cavern just full of bones and you're like ah how how much deeper does it go <laughs> yeah or like journey to the center of the bone dungeon <laughs> journey to the center of the bone zone yeah of the yeah. bone zone <laughs> that's, a, that's what the rats like call we're not we're not oh. accepting that too uh, bad. Um, Donato and I have unionized. <laughs> I'm editing this week, yeah. well, so that's staying in. 
uh, Union's going to knock on your door in four weeks. So you don't, uh, you don't sorry. If it was good enough for, for John Hall, it's good enough for you. Uh, you guys have talked about a lot of stuff that I, I want to, to throw my uh, 10 cents in. Um, I will no, say the two only things. Only five cents. Great, great. That's all I have. I just have a, a Buffalo nickel. The two things that I want to add are, um, one, I love what you guys were talking about with regards to trauma, because we've gotten to a point, I think, in horror where anytime they're like, is it a monster or is she crazy? I'm like, please be a monster. Please be a monster. I cannot deal with another like repressed trauma, like <clears throat> schizophrenic story arc. I'm just like, I'm over it. It bums me out that I've gotten to this point because that is my jam more than anything. So when... It also feels not not to like cut you off, but it no, also it, it, like I mean I'm just I'm preaching to the choir here, but like it very much feels like horror people being like, well, this isn't really horror. Like we're not right. like that. We're not like in that gross icky B movie zone. Like we're like, uh, please give us an Oscar. <laughs> like, um, like I would, I will never see the day, but I would love it to happen where we get a you know a, a well respected genre film that you know, gets to be a genuine genre film and it doesn't have to kind of like justify itself. Also, sorry for the feedback. There's definitely a fairy coming, whatever. Um, do you know what I mean? Like where it's, mm -hmm. it's very much, um, you know, people claiming elevated horror almost as like a separate genre or like people shitting on the thing for the special effects where it's like, that actually does have meaning and content and like text to it um just because it's visual and disgusting and like the text doesn't i don't know do you know what i mean like i just it just feels very much like embarrassed like people are embarrassed for things to be horror and i'm just like like that's kind of what's so great about graveyard shift i think as a stephen king adaptation is so much of his work is trauma related which is fine um but it's just really refreshing to have you know a stephen and like the short story isn't very good <laughs> um but it's really fun to have I don't know, a Stephen King property that's just like, what if there was a big rat? <laughs> like, right. I don't know. <laughs> like, it's it's nice. That, that's well, it. That's all I got. No, you're good. Um, sorry, I was gesturing at Donato on camera to see which one of us would go first, and I won. Uh, and I, I think I think <laughs> what you're... Scissors. <laughs> yeah, we really should do that. We really should do that. That'd be fun. Because we record with camera. For those that can't see, we record with cameras on, but we don't share the video ever. So it's sort of like, you know, this is where like, Donato, are you going to go? Am I going to go? Um, and I, I think that goes back a little bit to the X-Files nature for me, because one of the things that's interesting to me is when, if I were to go up to anybody, right, and ask them, what are your favorite, and this X-Files is mid to late 90s, early 2000s, so peak nostalgia for the year of our Lord, 2022. But if I go up to anybody and I say, what are your favorite X-Files episodes? Um, they're going to name Monster of the Week stuff. They're not going to name, like, you know, long ongoing story arcs. They're not going to be like, oh, the episode where like Mulder almost saw his sister and didn't and like was super upset about it at the end of the episode. Fucking classic. That's not it. They're going to be like, it's the guy who like could kill people with his mind or it's like the dude that like harnessed the power of lightning. And for some reason, even though we're in an era that is probably more influenced by X-Files than any other TV show from, you know, the last Twin Peaks. Sorry. Sorry. I forgot Twin Peaks existed. <laughs> that is, you know, uh, influenced by a non Twin Peaks show. It's X-Files more than anything else. I still feel like we've taken the wrong lessons from it where a lot of our movies try and represent the like trauma ongoing story arcs with like the hints of something as opposed to, you know, like human stakes to the extreme. And it's all about sadness. Whereas like, sometimes I just want my horror to be like, 
Mulder and Scully went to Louisiana and uh oh, there's a swamp monster. And did well, they also, kill like, it? Naming what the metaphor is means that all other possibilities get blocked off. And right. that kind of like neuters what's exciting about horror, which is that it's gestural and, you know, not specific and more elusive and open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why, like, you can have, you know, all sorts of vampire films that can mean everything from, you know, eat the rich stuff to, you know, AIDS metaphors. Like, you can really play the field. And I think by, like, narrowing being myopic about it, you limit what horror can be. And it's not to say that trauma metaphors aren't valid. It's just, like, really boring that that seems to be all that people are doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah. What if there was a big rat? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, and to stay in the era of the 90s, too, you know, I think, like, the 90s are a maligned genre. Or, sorry, a maligned period of horror, and especially genres like the sla- uh, slashers or where they came back. But creature features, especially, I think creature features and also haunted aesthetics for me the 90s kick ass because like the 90s is where for the creatures you get like from dusk till dawn demon night like demon wind like jesus fucking wild ass movies that have huge costumes huge effects and they are huge in the sense that like you feel the atmosphere so deeply like they, they care so much to build the universe they are in and whether that is with the monster itself or like from dusk till dawn which literally is like the entire temple and the strip club and all that stuff like these are just sensory overload films that have so much fun. Uh, like the remake of House of Haunted Hill still takes is a 90s film. And like that is to me like one of the pinnacle gothic aesthetics before we get to the 2000s and everyone starts cutting budgets and no one's allowed to like do these grand like a kind of like I say epic and I mean it kind of like feeling uh, horror film. So like I, I think Graveyard Shift fits in there because what it is doing with tone and what it is doing with its settings and what it's doing with a lot of stuff like is just so foreign still. And it's so weird for me to look back on like, you know, the nineties and like have so much fun with these movies when for so long, everyone's like, Oh, like no good horror came out in the nineties. Like did no good horror come out or were you just super not into like having fun with your horror films or were you taking them too seriously? I think that's like a conversation I often run into with the nineties horror. And, you know, of course like screen is there. Like, of course the big, the big movies are still there, but for what that nineties did for that kind of huge, huge huge horror budget aesthetics like i man like we just don't get that anymore and i'm not saying demon Wind is a perfect film i'm not saying graveyard ship is a perfect film <laughs> but they are perfect tone i am and like <laughs> well yeah like I'll, I'll tell you you're right you're right i will i will go to bat and say demon Wind is a perfect perfect film but like, ah, no <laughs> it is perfect in the way that it is batshit insane and you know what like if i have to watch nine new horror movies i'm gonna watch demon Wind as my 10th as a palate cleanser and that's just because i need what they're doing uh, two I, things I need I to say that. before I forget. Um, uh, the DOP was Peter Stein, who shot Chud, and Friday the 13th Part 2, and Pet Cemetery, which is why Graveyard Shift looks good. <laughs> like, like shot by a DOP that knew his genre, knew where to put a camera. Mm-hmm. Shadows, okay, mind shafts, thing. and angles. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, wet. Him being like, make it wet. <laughs> Great. Um, what if it were wetter? Um... Uh, okay, so this might be a rumor. It, like, I, I don't have corroborating sources, but uh, all signs seem to point towards Frank Welker being the voice actor they brought in, which I believe because that man has almost 900 credits. <laughs> so like, I, I totally could see it being him. He's, the I think, the third highest paid actor ever. 
um, like Hollywood actor. He is mostly known for voicing Megatron and Fred in Scooby Doo. He like he voiced everything. And uh, if if you're like whatever walking away from your TV and you've got your headphones on and you just hear the big rat, you're like it's definitely a guy. Um, and it's, it's Frank Walker, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, I'd like to think so. I would believe it on your, it too, on your yeah. IMDb, Frank. <laughs> Make yeah. it 892. <laughs> when the fact becomes legend, print the legend. There we go. Yeah, We've got whatever. it. You're, you're an archivist. I, you appreciate, you know, just being like, yeah, 40%, let's print it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that. Love when people do that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I, I really, you know. Love when the, you try to find something out and it's eight different people saying the same thing but not citing where they learned it. That's my favorite. That's, <laughs> That's the best favorite. one. That's the best one. You know, I think... Um, to, to sort of sum up impressions on it. I mean, you Meg, you led this off by saying that it's amazing how good old movies look in a world of digital creations. And I mean, I don't want to single out, you know, Thor or anything like that because it's, it's, an, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's as much of a, it's as much of a capitalism issue as it is a uh, labor issue, right? That, like, if only the, there the were a movie about, with a big rat in it that tackled the themes of labor and capitalism. <laughs> I will say yes. This movie, this movie presages the amount of uh, workers that'll be burning through in these little VFX studios. But you know, it's there. There is a there's a beauty. Your trip is a documentary about how Thor got made. Correct. Yeah, uh, the giant rat is Taika Waititi. I don't know where I'm going. No, it's this. Disney. It's Mickey Mouse. It's the big rat. Fair enough. Movie. Fair enough. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. I thought we were going to get into another Taika Waititi fight. Um, no. I love the notion that that there is um, this idea that like old stuff looks better now because new stuff is worse. And that's something that every generation kind of has a version of music used to be better. Other things used to be better, but here it's actually a procedural thing, right? Like it's an actual change to how we make and where we put our time and money. And I do, I choose to be optimistic that maybe someday the resurgence of home video and the proliferation of 4k and Blu-ray releases of some of these movies will raise a generation that, that, puts their money and their value into things that look like this and not the things that look like what we get right now. I would just love people to use formats that make sense for the story they're telling. Like I think Unsane being shot on an iPhone made sense for that movie. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't just have to do with how good something looks like it just shouldn't detract from the story. And I find that there's lots of, you know, digital filmmaking that serves the story. There's a lot like Tangerine's a great example. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's folks who still shoot on film who are lucky to do that. And they do it because it serves the story. Some of them do it because they're film fetishists, but that's that's fine. Um, I would just like people to have the option. I think that would yeah. be great. And it's good that there are still that there are still re- reminders out there of what good lighting, balanced lighting can look like. Yeah. <laughs> so not, a, not everything looks terrible remember, on any screen. Do we remember light meters? <laughs> no, we clearly don't. No. Then last question for you, Meg. Um, we like to end the podcast by always talking about where, like, where does this movie belong in sort of a legacy piece? You know, what is the audience going to be? How does it sort of, you know, survive for future generations? I think this one has sort of a built-in cheat because it is a Stephen King adaptation. So there will always be I don't think some King degree of interest. People like it though. Like, really? I don't, I don't, I think Stephen, I don't think Stephen King people claim this one. Um, in the same way that like, I don't see a lot of Stephen, like, cause modern Stephen King has definitely become like, the Mike Flanagan, 
Flanaganification of Stephen King, where it's like all very drama based now and like character based. Like we've like even the new it's are like that, whereas it's less about the monster, I find, or like whatever. Um and I, I just I don't see <laughs> like Graveyard Shift is always at the back. <laughs> it's always yeah. at the back of the list. Um and I think that's largely because it, it departs from a lot of conventional like kind of like Cujo where people just can't deny the goodness of Cujo but I mean it, it does it is awkward in the pantheon and so I I think hardcore Stephen King fans <laughs> might be repulsed <laughs> by watching this um I think this is a film for goop appreciators is, is my thought I feel like the Venn diagram of like people who like goop people who like wacky accents and people who like uh Brad Dwarf it's a circle. <laughs> I think that's who yep. this movie's for. <laughs> and I would also say the Stephen Kingness of it all. Like when I was watching Graveyard Shift, I thought it's like closest comparison in the Stephen King pantheon was like Firestarter, which is, again sure. goes goes to the fact of why it's at the the back of the list because they are both these adaptations that uh, exist. Let's put it this way: they are adaptations that exist. They take big swings. Which one are you talking about? Yeah, so this is why the fingers oh. are here. Are you talking about the new one or the old one? No, the old Firestarter. I'm talking like it, like the connectivity to the old Firestarter. They are just they are so quintessentially B movies uh, in both of what they're doing. So I think going along with what you just said, Meg, the way that we see King and the way that like we interpret King to be more serious in, in, in the newer films, I, I believe that these two much campier films are forgotten because they are probably the campiest of his creations in a way. And sorry, not his creations, but his adapted creations. Yeah, I just feel like the camp has kind of left Stephen King, which is fine, but I love camp. (laughs) Yeah. The man was writing his books on cocaine. We should at least do him the justice of having a cocaine trip-esque experience with that. Yeah, yeah. Also, this film has really big De Laurentiis energy, if that vibes with you. You can scratch that itch here. Yep. And come for, uh, if nothing else, you have to come and watch the movie so you can hear Brad Dourif deliver the line, burning baby flashback fuckers. You see Bruce Dern playing to talk about his post-traumatic stress from Vietnam. It's my favorite, my favorite thing in the movie. Uh, I, I'm going to point at him. Also, I'm going to say a great, a great, uh, Brad Dourif tier also like his tier yes. acting is always good, but there's like a really good one in graveyard shift. He has a good, good one on a close-up, and I think that there is, a, like, maybe not Stephen King fans, but I do believe the Child's Play fans will probably gravitate oh, to yeah, this yeah, as yeah, sort yeah. of, like, the extra universe of Brad Dourif stuff. So a franchise will keep this one afloat. It's just not the franchise it probably thought was going to keep it afloat. He's got I huge... I also just think, like, there is appreciation for big, dumb, goopy creature effects, especially because we're all starved for it these days. So I feel mm-hmm. like there's always going to be little freaks running around finding graveyard shift for that reason. Cause it's like a really cool monster, <laughs> like yeah. really, really neat looking guy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's I don't know. <laughs> the hybrid of rat and bat somehow, you know, we get a rat bat and it's like this great. Yeah. The film yeah. does not care to explain what happened, no. which is nope. great. Where it's, where it's just like, shut up. It's big. <laughs> like great. Um, also it gets a great, like the finale, which we won't spoil, is also delightful and always, always a treat to watch that finale. Well, there will always be an appetite, as you said, for creature features. There will always be an appetite for going back and seeing these kind of huge effects. And wh- whether you are someone just discovering practical effects for the first time and what they can be having seen, you know, I think a lot of young, younger film audiences and getting used to digital and maybe going back and being like, <laughs> excuse you. 
I would like to keep this in the podcast, please. This is okay by you. This is a rare they're Rogers going, sighting. There you go. They're going, hell yeah, I love practical <laughs> That's that <laughs> Rogers is a pre all right, we'll leave it in because Rogers is appreciating practical effects. But yeah, so I, I He do lives in a practical <laughs> effects household, yeah, for sure. He knows. So yeah, I, I feel like it's really interesting for younger audiences who are so used to listen, I think Thor, the latest Thor, is pretty artistic in a way. Uh, I know it's super CGI'd, but it's doing more than some of the other ones. Like I look at some of the other color palettes. <laughs> I, know, I know someone's in the pool, Rogers. We don't have to bark at them, though. Rogers is going Thor bad. <laughs> he is now anti-Thor. In any case, the point I'm trying to make: there will always be an appetite for these kind of creatures, and this movie will always exist in some way as like a Stephen King adaptation. So it's always going to have that pull. It's always going to be attracted to like maybe Shutter brings it on at one point. It's going to be on streaming services eventually, stuff like that. Yeah. So like, it's it was on Tubi for five hundred yeah, years, exactly. Uh, and it pro, it, I, I'm sure that the the cost of releasing that movie is two cents. <laughs> I'm sure it costs nothing. Although I don't know, not that's not a, a knock at Tubi. They are the best streaming service. Uh, Correct. No shade to anyone else with Tubi rips. <laughs> we are a Tubi <laughs> pro. We're a Tubi pro podcast. Yeah. We always, we always promote yeah. Tubi. Yeah, we want that sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I uh, agree with everything you had to say, Donato. Um, I had a point that I was going to drop in at the very end. It was some sort of funny quip to bring the whole thing together. But now I'm just thinking about Rogers barking, and you know, <laughs> I, I don't I don't really have anything maybe there's else a rat there. in your in your your place of living, Donato. It's a rat bat. The rat bat's behind me. Also, the rat the rat Mo- bat is back. Moxie, great dog. Also in yeah. Brad Dwarf's, uh rat terrier. We, do we get confirmation? Does the dog die? The dog does die. In that we don't the dog know. is we don't know. The dog we, is, know. we uh, this this uh, well we should look it up on does the dog die because that is the final word on these sort of things. But uh-huh. the dog the dog sounds like it's dying and that it's never seen again. Um I'm going so, no, no, guess, no I'm going scream rules, didn't see a body. See, I okay. We gotta we're gonna talk when I'm in LA because my wife hates that rule and we have literally had the worst fights of our relationship on the didn't see a body rule after didn't see a body. Movies, so. <laughs> okay, we're gonna picking up that there. Anyways, regardless, Meg, <laughs> it was so good to have you on the show. Thank you for bringing us Graveyard Shift. Thank you for uh, oh, bringing bringing the first king to to our cast. I mean, we're not gonna confuse ourselves with the king cast anytime soon, but. I it's seemingly have those cowards talked about graveyard shift yet. Oh, they they <laughs> must know. have. They must have, and they they probably brought on somebody important to talk about it too. It's probably but I will like say that Malton, who is like, I stand by it. I think the effects were bad. <laughs> he hates this is, movie. So does Stephen King. <laughs> so every every everybody everybody hates this movie that was around the time the movie was made. We'll put it that way. But that's okay. But we got it. You know it. what other Stephen it. King adaptation Stephen King hates? The Shining. So I think that means the Shining and Graveyard Shift are equal films. <laughs> Yes, um, and I like Graveyard Shift a lot better than The Shining, but that's a conversation for, for another <laughs> time. That's a spicy take from Matt Monagle. Meg, thank you for coming on the show. Please oh, take this opportunity to talk about yourself. Promote what you got coming up, things you're working on. Where do people go if they want to just sort of follow you and learn more about the things that you're interested in? Uh, you probably follow, uh, yeah, Goop. If you want Goop and you want nuns, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the worst nun. Uh, and, which makes sense. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, you can uh, hang around the Film School Rejects Twitter to watch the 31 Days of Horror Lists, which will be starting on the 1st of October. And I, we have a couple make-a-wish lists that we were bullied into voting for because they've been denied for years. So there's some weird ones coming down the pipe. Um, and also, yeah, some bangers that have been on, on the back burner for a while. So we've got some good stuff for October. 
Nice. And Mig continues to write some of the best breakdowns that you'll find of practical effects, um, your favorite shots, your favorite effects in horror and other genre history. So definitely worth checking out a film score for all of that good stuff. Donato, my friend, you are a busy beaver who has turned the internet <laughs> against you. But um, if there are for the few. <laughs> For the few folks that don't hate you right now, well, how do they follow you on social media? What did I do? Uh, I don't know. I said the first fright, or sorry, the uh, original Fright Night is worse than the remake. Uh, oh did, yeah, that is that is a punishable offense. Yeah, I also I also dared write on IGN that the Resident Evil TV show is a good adaptation, and uh, they got mad that I called out racists for review bombing it. So you know they told on themselves. Oh, Whatever, okay. they can hate me. In any case, you can find me pissing the internet off on Why would you lead with the Fright Night thing? (laughs) (laughs) Because I own it. Listen, I make my mistakes. I do what I do, and my opinions are my opinions, and I always defend them. So I'm just going to put it out there. Yeah, I'm often wrong, but in my heart, I know I'm right, and that's all that matters. We stand a sincere king. That's what we do here. In any case, at Donatabomb, Letterboxd, Instagram, Twitter all the places where I will post my reviews and IGN and things of that nature. Also, presumably I will have Fantasia coverage coming up soon that I should probably start watching. So yeah, I don't know. I'm going to go sleep after this. Maybe never. That's fair. It's like eight 45. Are you like a 90 year old woman? No, I just haven't slept in like five days and I still have tons more work and the crushing weight. Sounds is... like that's on you. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Donato. Donato somehow watches, he works eight hours and watches eight movies a day. And I don't understand how he does it, but it stresses me. Well, out. He's, he's got the Steve Buscemi eyes. He uses one eye to, to write and one eye doing Fantasia screeners. To see into the future. Yeah. Uh, as for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Monagle. But more importantly, go check out www, that was too many W's, www.certifiedforgotten.com. Um, please go check out the piece on Hagazusa that Meg wrote that I basically bullied her into writing for us because I really wanted her to write about that film because it's an incredible fucking film. It's a great movie. And yeah, I think that I think that's about it. Um, my brain is starting to shut down, which feels like it's a good time to end the podcast episode. But Meg, Meg Shields will return. We'll do it Marvel style at some point. <laughs> we'll have you, we'll have you back Bond on the show. Style. We don't need Marvel. James Bond, here. thank you. Go. There you go. James Bond style. Meg Shields will return, and all I know is that her next selection <laughs> will be goopy as fuck. No, we're just going to do Graveyard Shift again. That's the thing. going to make you keep doing Graveyard Shift. <laughs> oh, I love that. Let's fade this out. Okay. Goop. 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 <laughs> is that the ASMR? <laughs> That's, we do that at the end of the episode. It's weird. <laughs>